Hello and welcome to another episode of 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast where we explore what it takes to maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while living with the unique stressors of this strange yet potent time. My name is Brett and I'll be your host on this journey. And for today's episode, we have Susan Harper joining us on the show to talk about her work with a practice called Continuum. Susan is a multimodal teacher of perceptual and movement inquiry with an extensive and rich resume of varying practices from all over the globe. Having been teaching since 1975, Susan's reached thousands of people with her effective and intuitive blend of practices and understandings. Most notable of her offerings is Continuum, a modality that she in large part helped develop with the visionary Emily Conrad. If you haven't heard of it, Continuum is an exploration of the fluid body, which uses movements and sounds to help draw our awareness away from the surface-level personalities and identifications we normally have into a deeper, oceanic, creative expanse. It's pretty dang amazing, actually. And this conversation is so rich with practical and immediately applicable insight into how we can connect with our body and navigate the uncertainty of this fairly challenging time. I hope that you enjoy it because I had a blast working with Susan and preparing this episode for you. So if you want to stay plugged into her work, head on over to continuummontage.com to see her online workshop schedule. If you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism and consider just leaving us a tip. You can also subscribe over on YouTube, follow us on Instagram, or like us on Facebook. If you are doing the YouTube thing, liking the video and commenting are also huge in helping us propel into the algorithms. So without further ado, please sit back, do some stretches, drink some tea, and most importantly, open your heart for the one and only Susan Harper. We are now live. Susan, uh, hello and welcome to the show. I just want to start by saying thank you so, so much for being here. It's an honor to have you on. How are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. As I was just saying before we were recording, I've been doing a deep dive into your offerings, into the many stories of your life. You have a really wonderful documentary that's on your website. And it was very hard to dial in what I wanted to talk about because so many of these kind of warrant their full conversation. But the way that you kind of came into my field was through the continuum practice of which you're, I'd say, most recognized from. So I figured dialing in on that would be a really good place to start. So for the listeners who may have never heard of you, uh, I guess, how would you, uh, what's your elevator pitch on who you are and what exactly is continuum? Mm, yeah, thank you. Yes. So I teach Continuum and was one of the developers of it. Mm. It was originally created by Emily Conrad and developed and evolved and journeyed. She's a very extraordinary, passionate woman who was so deeply listening into her um into her deep body intelligence and into the creative flux. And out of that was birthed continuum. I met her in 1975 and studied with her and eventually um, became a partner teaching. And then eventually um, we also separated out so that I could explore all the many, many, many other things that I also became interested in. And so my favorite thing really to teach, I teach it always somehow one way or another, is about perceptual inquiry and within continuum <clears throat> as well. And that is that the sense that the way in which we perceive creates our version of reality. And so it's the most creative thing we can do is to attend the actual ways that I'm seeing, listening, touching, smelling, tasting this world, to be in the reciprocity of engagement. And continuum is a, um, a beautiful creative inquiry into movement, into creativity itself, but also through movement, 
through sounding, through breathing practices. And rather than teach like a whole set of prescriptions and protocols and set ways to do things, we go inside, we invite people inside, playing with the fluid system, which means you're playing with curling and arcing and waving and pulsing and finding all the ways that water moves to find that inside your your stream, your body's capacity. And it's quite different than having a mechanical model. So if I'm doing an exercise to account, it's like that's part of the modern fitness or industrial revolution world, whereas an older form is to come into the into the fluidity, the way of water, the wholeness of water. And that gives us um, just a whole other sense of what it is to be alive, to be in a body. I'm not so much in the body image. I'm more in one more in the natural body. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, when I was doing my research into this, that was something that kind of kept coming up as this connection with fluid and with water and understanding our internal oceanic experience. Could you maybe explain just a little bit more about that relationship to what it means to be a human and having this relationship to the internal fluid system? I think it's like a, a very new thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Most folks, I would say, are tending the body image, cultural image of a body. And so we grow up with like looking at magazines and mirrors and getting reflections from all different kinds of people about what is a body. And what a body is, is full of so many processes. So many processes. Is that fully, uh, the body is full of movement. You don't even have to move. Body is already, every cellular dance inside is in a movement, in an exchange, in a play. All the organs are moving. They have their own motility, their way of digesting, metabolizing. We have a whole breathing system. So movement is what is. And then what is it like for me to have a way to start to experience that, to come out of my body image and come down in to a more elemental perception? And we use the fluid in particular, but really all the elements. Our bodies are a co-rising of all the elements. And this is, of course, in Buddhist philosophy and many different places this is seen and understood, this co-arising. So when we come, when I come into the way of the water, I come into the fluid capacity. And in one sense, in our bodies, we have the cerebral spinal fluid. We have blood, lymph, tears, sweat. We have um, so many different kinds of fluids in us. But the approach we're taking is, what if we play with the movement of water itself? And the movement of water is a state changer as well. So water moves and, and streams and undulates, but it also evaporates. What is that like? for me as this body and human cultural being to come so deeply into that quality that I am, I am in the practice in a sense of becoming space while I'm completely right here. Space inside and then the air floating, the water floating into air and then this capacity of water to freeze, to come totally um, gathered in and become completely still and impermeable. And then the warmth of breath or the warmth of the sun and then that process of the melting. And that gives me a way to play with any places inside that I may have needed to freeze for psychological reasons, emotional reasons. But when I play in the way of water, I have a way to start to let those places in my body that have become frozen start to melt and to find the streaming um, rivulet play. Water is so playful. And you think about all kids when they get in wild water, if it's like a safe circumstance in wild water, and then pretty soon they're like 
so exuberant. There's so much playfulness. Or if you see like otters, like they're like completely playful little creatures. So water has this streaming playful quality. And one more thing is that when water comes out of a faucet, it comes into a whole drop and then it falls to the ground. So water surrounds the entire planet. And then water is um, volume to surface. It's just all one. And so the water is a teacher of wholeness as well. And there's something about letting go of all my usual stories and body image and concerns and touching into the way of water. And then I'm coming into a much um, pre-human state, actually, that's also in me as a human. But then in those waving, circulating, playing ways, most often when people play in that way for a bit, they come up out of it feeling more sense of connection, like an existential state of connection and wholeness and often describe it as coming up with feeling the feeling of love. Not, not so much like, oh, I love you and do you love me and all that stuff. It's a, it's a whole other frequency of love itself manifesting, incarnating in the way of water and the way of fire and air and earth and creatures and humans. So it's how, to have a more it's to have a bigger more ecocentric view instead of a so much of a egocentric view yeah an ecocentric view like as an ecology yeah I love that yeah wow, that's beautiful how do you start teaching somebody to start moving and kind of symbolically representing water like when somebody comes to you who's very new to this and you've explained this to them and they're like that sounds really good. You know, what does that actually look like? Like if someone were to take a class from you and it's like mm-hmm. the theory, there's this idea, but the physical expression of that, what is that? How do you teach that? Yeah. So just first to say, instead of it, in one way, we could say symbolic representation. In another way, we could say, we're going to come in, we're going to start with something very simple, like oceanic rocking. Like you just start with a little bit of cueing the body and the spine and the soft tissues to start to rock. You right there, you're rocking your heart, you're rocking your chest, you're rocking the fluids that are in your body, you're rocking the organs. The organs are all composed mostly of liquid. I'm rocking my head. Well, what's my brain? It's completely surrounded by liquidity. So as I'm rocking, and then the emphasis is initiate the rocking, or the pulsing, or the waving, curling, the primary step then is to be able to feel it. The sensuous feeling of what is that like to come from, like let's say if I'm a more stiff person and I even just start that little bit of rocking, pretty soon the connective tissue, muscles, different ligaments are going to start to soften a bit. And in the softening, I'm actually moving more and more of the whole liquids that are in my body. When we're born, I think we're something like 90% liquid. And by the time we're 90, we're 45% liquid. We're kind of a drying out process as we age. So what we want to play with is how do we keep all the connective tissue as much slide, glide, play as possible. So when we move in all these little, small, rocking, pulsing, curling kind of ways, instead of I'm just playing like, oh, I play in that then I am literally moving all the tissues in a way that reminds the connective tissue where it's gotten thick and sticky. It reminds it like, oh no, there's flow. We can play with a little bit of oscillating and that helps the connective tissue also, like it helps squeeze out a little bit of some of the fluid in the connective tissue. 
and then take a fresh drink of the interstitial fluids. And so the literally in the muscles, the, in the fascial system, in the connective tissue, there's a refreshment of the water. It's like if you see a, you're hiking somewhere in the desert or in the mountains and you come across a very stagnant pool and it's kind of gotten really just slimy and the water, you wouldn't want to drink it. Like what refreshes the water is movement. So if there's more water coming, there's movement coming. And so our bodies need to move, but they need to move in nonlinear ways, in spirals and circles and little pulsing, waving. And then you just start to feel so well in that because you're in the health of the, the inherent health of the body. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> so how did you end up connecting with this kind of modality? You know, I'm curious about your story and your intersection with this. I know um, your teacher and friend Emily Conrad was a big part of that. So could I just hear a little bit about for you and your personal journey? Also, how you once you met her, how do you develop this and like work with this and allow it to kind of expand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was definitely on a journey in my 20s trying to find, like I had graduated from college and I just, I couldn't see anything in the culture that really was calling my heart, my soul really to. And I did a long homesteading process up in British Columbia for three months. I lived in the wilderness without um, any way to um, easily get back to a place that had electricity or a phone. I was three months in the wilderness. And yeah, it was it was quite a journey and it prepared me in so many extraordinary ways. One of them being is to live in wilderness and to be surrounded every day by just the livingness of each kind of tree, each kind of bush, each kind of creature, each kind of bird song. Like it brings all the senses open in such a powerful way. And I had previously been quite involved in protesting the Vietnam War. It was of that era. And then here I was suddenly in the wilderness and there was nothing to protest. Everything around me was so beautiful. And I realized the protest was deep inside me. That there was a protest, but it wasn't what was current in the in the scene, like the scene was like each fir tree, each cedar tree, each each of the trees like had their own radiance, their own life, their own story to tell. And I was coming from more of a human, modern human perspective into starting to feel what our hearts can do, which is to have more direct perceiving of the life story and the medicine of different kinds of plants in their expression. So um, I was by a river and I would just keep making this little sign in the sand like I was marking like a snake saying, I want to understand relationships that flow like the river. And the last place I was ever willing to live was Los Angeles. Came out of that whole wilderness experience and um, my mother talked me into doing the first workshop with Emily in Tucson, Arizona in in uh, January of 1975 and I was like but I don't know how to dance she goes no it's it's something quite odd maybe a little shamanic I think you'll like it and I did I I felt an immediate resonance with Emily and with the way that continuum was being explored at that time and I moved with the man who would become my husband Michael Stearns two weeks later to, to Los Angeles and just dove in and um, Emily was very influenced by a book by Theodore Schwenk called Sensitive Chaos. And it's a book that's quite a lot about the way all of the fluids in us and the fluids in nature and really the fluid dynamics, how the fluid dynamics help shape everything embryologically. They shape things evolutionarily. And so this quest to then really study the fluid dynamics and Emily was a genius in being able to take that information 
and come up with so many different kinds of exercises and sounds that would um, sounds that would um, that would help um, more deeply vibrate into the body, um, into tissues, into specific places, and and so in those days I was just like really um, so had so much appetite for wave motion and movement and play and I was also very good at being able to help others learn about the work so pretty quickly within that first year I was starting to teach and then eventually teaching some of the classes and then starting to travel take continuum into any place that anybody asked for it Um, and then in 1992 starting to take it to Europe and in 95 to Japan and just start to bring the reach of it out. And I, I, I didn't know when I first started to travel into other countries, was it going to be an LA woo-woo kind of a thing or would it be relevant to, to all people? And so far, of course, it's not relevant to everybody. There's some people who can't get into it for whatever reason. And everybody has different paths, that's fine. But it turned out to be quite relevant for many people in many different cultures, and that was really beautiful. So what Emily did was she was able to like, go in and really listen and start to explore. And then there were times where there's like, a, for just from the deep creative flux, the creativity of life itself, of that creative flux that gives rise to planets and stars and all the evolution that has occurred. And so, so it's like she would listen, be listening, and all of a sudden in her exploring, there would be like a way of exploring. And then she would teach that and find out how did that really work with all different kinds of people and refine that. And so what she would come up with, let's say, might be one of the sounds. Maybe it's just a simple like gong kind of a sound. And then she's exploring like, wow, when I really go into feeling that sound, where does it go and how does it land and different people as they play with it. And so I became curious about that process of diving into the creative flux. How do we go down or up or in? This doesn't really have a direction, but make ourselves really hollow enough, open enough not so consumed or self-involved, but so spacious that the creative flux can pour through one. And in it, when on a day of grace, then there's all of a sudden like there's a new exploration and and then it's like it's so exciting. And so then that process of sharing it, sometimes it comes from great need as well. Like I saw that Emily had been in quite a bit of anguish with a culture that was so trivialized and no initiatory rights. And she had lived in Haiti for a while, had been very influenced, but it was like she couldn't teach that. It was like there was something else birthing in her, but it had a huge influence that something like so deep can come through. And so there's a kind of, in the anguish, like she went in and out of that, Came, became processes, um, creative ways to play and explore. And it was like that became an answer to the anguish to create something that has so much vitality and dimensionality for people. And that I really resonated with. It was like we are so multidimensional. And I somewhere knew it before I met Emily, but I didn't know how to fully access it. And then when I met her, it was like an explosion for me in the creative context of Continuum to start to feel more depth of multidimensional experience capacity to know the huge creativity of this universe and to know it in a a human life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So as you became a teacher, you know, a year in and you're forming this relationship with Emily and you're starting to share this practice with more people, uh, was there anything that you found like a reoccurring 
blockage or obstacle that some of your students were experiencing that maybe some people who are going to get involved in this in the future might expect to maybe bump into? Is there something that you, like, wow, this issue just keeps coming up. What is this? Is there anything like that for you? Hmm, that's a good question. I think what what is the kind of largest impediment is how strongly we are identified with a self-image or a body image. If that's rigid in any way, if we're like continuum helps and really all the perceptual practices, it helps to loosen the fixity of identity to come to greater and greater sense of each one. Each one of us, I think, has a particular kind of unique gift deep in the heart. And sometimes that's called soul. I don't really know which all words truly to use. But many people have had early in life more belittling or bullying or diminishment or disrespect of their core expression, their core, like just life expression. And so when that happens, we have a lot of adaptation. We make a lot of personality in all different kinds of ways to be safe. And so the process really is to help loosen the adaptations and to let the deeper stream of creativity that's unique in each one come through. So it's really helping soften the either I can't, I don't believe that's possible for me, um, uh, some kind of really strong defense structure that someone's quite identified with. And we needed all those things at a certain time. That's just how we survive. But we don't have to be stuck there. And so I think the greater impediment really is how one, if, if one is more solidified around their self-description, then it's harder to start to play. And there's a, this is like a very deep form of play. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was something as I was watching videos and the practice is very beautiful to watch people who are in this place and have seen the groups of people on the ground and just their free-flowing expression. And I thought of myself, like, what would I be like in that kind of situation? Because I've never really, I have like a dance practice. I do yoga. Um, I wouldn't argue that I'm very good at dancing, but I enjoy it very much and have allowed myself to really kind of get to the edge of my comfort. But as I see this, I have to admit, I felt a little bit of, um, not apprehension, but a sense of like, ooh, I don't know if that is for me because that's very, it's very sensual, you know? And I wonder um, about the nature of maybe feeling like ashamed or maybe embarrassed or just really like the vulnerability that comes from allowing yourself to move in this way. Uh, So could you say anything to the nature of shame and embarrassment and um, just like what exactly is that in people? Is it what you were just describing or is there anything else there? That's so beautiful. Thank you for just your honesty and your own um, very accurate, self-reflexive imagining. Um, Yeah. It, the, the work in many ways is quite vulnerable in the sense that you are coming to more of an original state. Like we come into this world, if we've had a healthy enough birth, we are deeply sensuous, moving little, like little beings, little babies, right? And like, and then we're exploring. We just want to explore everything. I want to touch everything. I want to get my finger into the plug if I can. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a, such an appetite, a natural appetite in the young ones, whether it's human or cats or dogs or wolves or um, sea lions. Like the babies like to play and they're curious for life, right? But then we may have had... Um, we may have had either parental or cultural contexts that tell us that that it's not okay to move that way. 
that we're too soft or we're too weird or whatever, right? And so we don't want to, when that happens, when our own natural expression is put down in any way, shame is what arises. That is what arises. One way to understand shame is that the affect of shame arises when there's a cut in mutual interest. Mm. So let's say I am like, I'm playing a certain way as a little one, as a young person, and somebody, and I want to also see and be seen there. I want to like engage. I want to participate. I want to play. And somebody finds what I'm doing like somehow there's a tone, an attitude of like, that's not okay. Then that moment of the not okay comes in, it cuts the, the interest effect. And in that moment, the tail tucks, the head bows, and I can't think well anymore. That's the affect of shame. Sylvan Tompkins spoke about this really, really beautifully in many, many books. And another example is if you see it in a puppy, like the puppy comes in and <clears throat> you've been outside all day and the you come in and the puppy's like, oh, you're going to play with me, right? Like right now you're going to play with me. And you're like, no, I can't right now. Mm. The, the tail tucks, the head falls. And then pretty soon the puppy's like back again, like, okay, you're going to play with me, right? But in humans, we tend to not recover so quickly, especially if we're repeatedly judged for movements like that, that kind of flow. So we're, we are both two things. Sometimes we have a lot of layers of inhibition. And so where, let's just say in my, in my, <clears throat> my core and my arms, like, whoa, I just want to really play. But every time I started to do that, there was a, a judgment. I learned to retract in the actual muscles, in the connective tissue, in the ligaments. I learned to put a retraction, like an inhibition. Don't you dare move that way. So the very same place that could flow is inhibited. So we have to also meet the inhibitions mm. softly and kindly and tenderly. Like, yes, of course we're inhibited. Yes. And so it's like, yeah. So it's like a slow little process of coming to explore and feel it out. And just, is this a safe enough actually context where I could start to move like that? Mm. So that's one. And then it's very sensuous. So Many of us learn to have a lot of agency, action, agency. Okay, I can move, but to feel the movement, we open the sensuous door. And it's like this. If a runner, somebody who's really good at running, and every day they're running out there, but if they don't feel the run in their legs, in the part of the brain, the homunculus that maps the body, they could have like little toothpick legs. Because they're running, and if you look at the leg, it's nice, you know, the muscles are good, the bones, everything's functioning well. But if there's not feeling it, then the part that maps in our brain has these little funny, like, non-legs almost. So what helps us recover the real body, natural body, is to be able to feel it mm -hmm. in its dimensionality, in its substance, in its fluidity, in its warmth in the body's um, like fullness and full energy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That actually leads really nicely into something I wanted to talk about, and that is the idea of perception and how, I mean, from my current understanding, it, it takes place in the mind, in the brain. So even as you just said, they might not feel their legs and you pointed to here, uh, for people who've never heard, I've heard of the homunculus because I'm a body worker and that the somatic connection is really um, interesting to me. But for people who've never kind of heard this idea that perception is something that kind of takes place here and that it's all, you know, really generated, like this whole world that we perceive is actually constructed in a way. Could you just kind of explain that for some people or correct me if I'm wrong? <laughs> So it's, there's centers in the brain, but the periphery 
like what we know by the periphery, what we touch at the ends of our body, at the surface of our body, is giving us so much information. It goes to the brain, but it needs the entire body. Perception is a whole body brain event. There's no, you can't really separate it. It's a false separation to say body and brain. No, the brain is part of the body. It's all one very coherent, intelligent, well-functioning uh, capacity when it's working well. So this brings like, for example, we're going to come to haptic perception. And so with haptic perception, when I pick up, this is the example I use most often, I pick up this cup and I would invite your, whoever's watching this or listening to this, I'd invite you to experience this like two, play along, pick up a cup. And then it's like you're touching the cup. And then at the same time, can you let the contour of the cup touch your, can you allow that into your hand, the temperature, allow that into your sense perceiving, allow the texture of the cup so that I'm allowing myself to be touched with what I touch. If I'm just an agency, I'm touching things, but I don't feel, I don't feel the, the reciprocity of the touch. I'm not getting new information. Then I pick everything up more by my image of it rather than by, well, how much effort does this actually really need? If I'm more like in pickup mode and I'm just grabbing everything, I maybe use way more effort than I need. It's like, oh, and I pick this up, the sensuousness, texture, contour, the textures of all this, it's like that informs me and that builds in the part of our brain that makes sense of the raw data. It, it helps give me a really accurate picture or let's say a more accurate picture of this. If I don't feel haptically, I'm relating to this cup more from a mental map, more from a mental image. And so I'm relating to the world like a whole series of objects and everything is kind of more outside. Whereas with haptic perception, what I touch, I'm also allowing to be touched sensuous. And that informs like the perceiving, like in a huge, huge way. So when you take that drink and the whole process of the swallowing of the water and the tasting of the water, then there, boof, there I have a sensuous experience. So let's say if I'm really thirsty, I let the thirst develop. I let the sensations of the thirst, which is happening all through the gut body, those sensations of like, how do I recognize, oh, I'm thirsty, is a feeling that's the shape of the tubes inside of me of changing shape, drying out. Water is inside of us is longing for itself, more of itself. Water wants water. So then I go, oh, yeah, I have to orient and pick up the glass, and now I'm going to take a drink. And as I take that drink, And I have right there one little small moment of satisfying a small need of thirst. And in that moment of the satisfying, I need to be able to feel it, to catch it. And in the moment of satisfying something in my whole body, like, ah, starts to widen and spread. And there's like this sweet little moment of satisfying, uh, mm, yeah. And then that helps the part of our whole system. It's a whole system event that has needs, takes orientation to get something, and then fulfills a need and comes back into satisfaction. And then the next need will arise. Yeah. But we that way we can play through the whole cycle in a sensuous way. Wow. Now, yeah. So does that carry over to the other senses as well. We talked a lot about feeling, but what about the visual field, what we smell, mm -hmm. what we taste? 
Um, mm-hmm. How does that translate yes, does. to those? Yeah, so that's haptic perception. It turns out, I don't remember his first name, but Gibson is a um, philosopher in, that called it all the senses are capable of haptic perception. And so, but basically what haptic perception means, it's like I can see, and as I see, whatever it is I see, I also allow what's really happening is whatever it is, I'm looking at a color, a shape, it's arriving into the retina, it's arriving into the, into the visual cortex, and it's arriving into the heart. The heart has all the sensory nerves come also down into the heart and then the heart and the brain are making sense of whatever that is but the haptic perception moment is that I start to attune to ah when I see that I feel I look at a color let's say I see a red scarf in the back of your in the background there and I look at that color red and I just see if I can feel like what kind of shape subtly do do my do does my inner body start to take and then maybe i look at the color blue and i feel a whole other kind of maybe widening or um i look at the color yellow and i feel a little <laughs> so it could be different at different times but it's more like saying uh let's tend the inner sensations and the inner volume changes of what happens with what we see. Like if we see something that's scary to us, our whole gut system immediately is going to retract. It's It keeps us safe that way. I'm gonna pull away from that. But can I notice that part too? Not just, oh, that's out there scary, but to feel or, oh, I, right now in Topanga in California, where I am, there's, uh, a beautiful apple tree in the yard and the apples just taste so well. So when I come outside and as soon as I see the apple tree, I'm starting to salivate. This, there's that sense of like, oh, I'm going to come, I'm going to pick that, I'm going to and take that into my body. So the senses bring us like whatever sound we could say, oh, that owl sound is out there. No, it's yes, it's out there, but it's arriving in your ear and it's like making a little um, vibration, a little movement, a little feel. So if I keep the world, everything is out, 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 I, I don't experience sensuously the touch of the world in here. I lose the reciprocity. And this is what in, like you see anybody who lives really in wild circumstance, native peoples who live all the time, there's such a reciprocity of the sense system and the thank you, the thank you to the apple tree, the thank you to the elements that that make this apple tree come into existence and will disappear it. Thank you. And so all of that process keeps building the reciprocity. Wow, that's amazing. You know, you mentioned um, seeing something that is scary and the whole uh, effect that ends up happening internally. Um, And I don't mean to pivot too much into a darker territory, but I do think a part of the show is using these practices to navigate the current time that we're living in and all of its uncertainty. Um, So I'm curious from your perspective with this, Um, with what's happening in the world, um, especially in the Middle East. And it's interesting with social media because now we have video, we have images which are just right there in our field. I mean, I can be laying in bed and connected to things that are happening that are terrible. Um, What would you say is a a way to approach this modern uh, phenomena of being able to be connected with these things? Because on one hand, I feel like it's really important to be paying our attention, to allow this to be a part of us because it is happening in our world. But on the other hand, I could see, uh, you know, I have people who are being very, very emotionally rocked day in, day out to a point where it's really affecting them. So developing haptically, if that's a a phrase of that word, uh, how do we navigate 
uh, just the uncertainty and the, the violence we see in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a rich question and, and so, so needed right now for all times, but also our current times. It's so heart-wrenching and heartbreaking on every possible level. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just come back to one piece about haptic perception, which is if we don't have a way to haptically play, we never get fresh information. We're, we're, we're locked into whatever mental maps we've made up until now. So then the next piece in, in terms of what you're naming is I do believe it's really powerful and important for us to attune to what is happening to be knowledgeable, to be aware, but then also let's make sure we keep the whole in our awareness because we can get fixated on the, the terrible, terrible, terrible. We have to be able to see it. But if I'm going to go there, then I also need to feel what are the deep, powerful, intelligent, creative food forces also operating. I need to steep in beauty, too, in the way of making beauty and creating beauty as like a, it's like a, a, a counterpoint, like what, what, what is my life incarnating process? What am I attending? What am I creating? What am I bringing forth into this world? How can I bring more love, more acceptance, more connect- connectedness? into this world. And so there's a place where I'm both haptically, like I take that in, I grieve, I I may need to shout, I may need to express like the, the horror of it. And, and, and I need to also be able to feel the deep currents of creation and destruction and life, and the stream of all of that. So it's like, what am I attuning to on a daily basis? If I attune to my TV set with very particular fear-mongering channels every single day, that's what I'm primarily attuning to, then I am going to be resonant with fear. If I am aware of what's happening, but if I am also, let's just say, attuning to the fluid, fluid dynamics. And if I'm attuning to um, like the deep stream and health that is still amount here in nature, if I'm attuning and aligning with the, the power and element of fire and the creativity of that and the waters and the air and the earth, I have another kind of attunement if I'm attuning to those beings that are helping more love come into this world. Then I have a way to help me hold what is so horrible, right? We're meant to be, I was listening to an interview recently with Francis Weller, and he said we're meant to be cosmos singing, cosmos grieving, cosmos streaming. And like that big current of creativity and why do, why do we even end up in the situations we're in has come when we created such a huge separation from human and nature. When we try to dominate nature and dominate bodies and dominate other people, we're in power dynamics. We're no more in the deep stream of life and death, but in a, in a, um, in a fluent, in a depthful way. So um, it's like, how, how, where, where am I attuning? And so this is a place like where people are coming to your podcast and other podcasts when I'm enjoying like a huge, um, big fan of right now is with Josh Shry, the Emerald. And he's also speaking to like so many ways to have a larger relationship with the animacy of this world and the animacy of the cosmos, the animacy of, of the big picture. And it's like, again, uh, playing in continuum and all these things. How do we, how do we make ourselves available for awe? 
too. Awe has what's awful and what's awesome, and the capacity to hold the whole dynamic range daily, daily, daily. I'm with what's utterly awful, and I'm also with whatever gives me even a tiny little moment of awe. In the research, they say one of the things that most often brings people awe is witnessing acts of courage or kindness from one person to another. You see somebody on the street in a moment of offering a, a random act of kindness, and it, it, it brings a wave to people. And so every time I have the tiniest little moment of awe, of like, oh, I look into the heart of a flower, I see, feel, then I can look again into the violence that's occurring. Why is violence occurring? We, we, turned, we turned the world into other. We turned the world into objects that we can, that we can hurt without consequence, without even a, a, a sense of conscious, conscience about it. So what, what can each of us do? I'm just going to say one more thing, and this is, from, this is from Frank Ostensky in his book, The Five Invitations. And he said, I always thought that love was going to save me. Somebody would come and their love was going to come in and save me. And he found that in his 20s, he was working with a a girl who um, had a disability or was differently abled in a pool, and he helped her find a way to swim. And in it, his heart love started to pour forth. And he began to feel that flow forth into the world that it began to heal some very deep wounds in him. And I, I feel so concurrently like, like, if you take the a metaphor of a hose, garden hose, and it's just lying fallow and empty, the other waters, like that, say the muddy waters, can come into it. But if there's a nice flow of water, let's call it a flow of love, coming right on through the hose, then I can't take in as much of, let's say, what I don't necessarily, what's not necessarily nourishing for me to take in. Part of hapticity is that we can see what's nourishing. It helps us know what to avoid, what to pull back from, or what to lean into. It's like the natural biological state where I go towards nourishment, I go away from something that might do harm. I want to bear witness. I want to take it in, but I want to take it in while I'm also taking in the depth of the equanimity of the earth to help me hold the horrible the horrible ways that people are behaving. Why? Because they lost their first sense of belonging, their deep interconnectedness that was gone. Like they've lost the, the larger uh, ultimate connection. And so sometimes it's like people think, like I was raised in a religion that thought you have to leave the body to get connected. And it's like, no, this body is already connected. That's what's true. The body is already connected. The earth of me is connected to the earth, the minerals. And the water of me is already connected to all the waters of the planet. And the air in me is already connected to all of the air. And the fire in my heart, in my belly, in my mind, in my genitals, that fire is connected to the fire of the sun and the fire of stars and the fire of, of the original like light realm. Wow. It's all already interconnected. What's not connected is a personality adaptation that I had to form early on that create a cut that made a me and the other. And the other, we need the other for reciprocity, but not the other for othering. And if I'm doing that, I've lost the interconnected truth. That's what's more true. And so I'm living in a kind of a, I'm living in a, a fragmentary way of thinking. David Bohm, a beautiful, amazing physicist, he said, this universe is experimenting with all kinds of meanings. And what is deeply true is it's everything is part of a whole. And so some meanings that the human mind experiments with are fragmentary and they will eventually disappear. In the meantime, they're creating huge amount of destruction 
on the planet, climate crisis, social justice, in every possible way. So what do we need? Practices that help us experientially feel our connections and our deep sense of belonging and our knowing that we're all in this together and we have to find our way to dance through our differences without blowing each other up. That's beautiful. Coming from a physicist too, that's wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, we are coming up on time and something I wanted to ask as kind of a closing statement. I mean, there's so much, I mean, I could respond to so many things there, but we'd be going for five hours. Um, For people who may never hear from you again, who don't decide to do continuum, what is something that you have learned that you'd like to impart on folks who will never engage with your platform or your practice? What is one thing that you hope that they take away from this conversation? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, is to to trust your deep heart. To know the primal deep goodness of your heart. And that however many layers of protection there may be, that deep in your heart is a, a force of incarnating, coming into life. And that you have a gift. And there's a gift in there that needs context. It helps that gift to grow. Every seed of any kind, every flower of any kind needs a context, a garden context, a a wild meadow context, to be interrelated with all the elements, to be connected. And then eventually needs the eyes and the, the nostrils. Every flower needs the nostrils of the other to really know its scent. The flower can't smell itself. So the whole world is arranged, nature is arranged, that we offer a gift, the flower offers its scent, and creatures come to receive it, and that's the reciprocity, where the, the, the butterflies come to pollinate, and, and there's the reciprocity. So each flower that comes into existence helps give rise to other species, other expressions. And we need the reciprocity. So to learn how to offer your gift, whatever that is, and receive the gift of the other in the way of of nature, which we are. Our deepest nature is nature. And the other thing I would say is get yourself into wild nature. Steep in. Steep in the natural processes so that you can come to trust and know your own natural body. And it's wise instincts for when you need to close and open and when you need to play, when you need to rest, when you need to like have big expression. Yeah. Wow. That is probably the best closing statement I've ever gotten on the show. So since most people after that are going to want to learn from you more, where can the people who want to stay in touch interact with you? How can they stay? Do you have online offerings or where would people go next? Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. So my website is called continuummontage.com and There's all kinds of online offerings, some in-person offerings. I'm just getting ready to get the 2024 schedule out. I will be teaching some in California, North Carolina, and Germany, probably, and in Japan. So a few international offerings, as well as online. Online is so easy to be in the comfort of your home. It's a beautiful place if you feel at all inhibited, because you're in your own home. You can just Take it in, in little micro steps or bigger steps as you like. And on the on my website, there are also many more um, video recordings, a documentary, audio interviews, uh, different ways to, to take um, inspiration if, if this is inspiring to you to take that in. Wonderful. And I definitely advocate listeners to watch that documentary because... I thought it was incredible. I mean, there was just so many hearing about your life growing up in Africa and just everything that you've moved through and all the practices. It's really, it, there's, there's a lot there that you can chew on. So, uh, yeah. And a thank you to Elaine Calandrea, who, who it was her impulse to make this documentary. She really surprised me with it. And, um, just a thank you for that. And thank you for your feedback on that. 
appreciate it and just being able to be in this conversation. Yeah, all the pleasure is yeah. all mine. Hopefully we have you on again. So that's it for today. Thank you so much, Susan. Truly, uh, it's been uh, a treat and an honor. Uh, Yeah, we'll catch you next time. All right, everybody, that was the episode. Thank you again for listening all the way through until the end. I really do make this show for you. Yes, you listening right now. Uh, That was Susan Harper. If you want to stay plugged in with her work, head on over to continuummontage.com. That link will be down below and consider one of her workshops i mean you've heard it here she's pretty dang incredible so if you want to help support this show moving forward you can consider just leaving us a tip on patreon.com 21st century vitalism subscribe on youtube follow us on instagram like us on facebook any and all interaction is seen and appreciated and will come back to you tenfold so i hope that this finds you really well i look forward to connecting with you in the future take care y'all